All right, well, bless you guys. This first one says this. This is, uh, I, it says, I'm excited about the exploration of the vast and beautiful territory opened up by the new covenant. I was thinking about this, this line. This is the line from my journal. I was spending some time with the Lord, and he said, what are you excited about? And I started writing these, and they just started flowing. So I'm excited about the exploration of the vast and beautiful territory opened up by the new covenant. What do I mean by that? A long time ago, I was working, working, working to try to help us understand the significance of the new covenant, Joyland. And just so many people I talk to in so much of the time, it's like a contract or, or some kind of a deal that's being cut halfway across the country that we're part of a class action suit on or something. So I, I was searching for a way to think about the new covenant, that which Jesus extended the, the cup and, uh, and said, this is the blood of my new covenant. And by the way, we're going to take communion in our breakout sessions today. So if you haven't got it, at some point, I won't be offended if I see you zip off camera and grab some com- communion elements. And, uh, but, but I'd love to have that, have that ready. So it's not like that. I came up with this thought that the new covenant is more like a country than it is a contract. It's more like a place that has a culture. It has uh, resources. It has an atmosphere. And the more I think about it, the more excited I get about that. There's places in the new covenant that are not just Bible passages that you and I uh, memorize or try to build some sort of a doctrine out of. There's invitations into places. And we're going to look at a few of them today. But, but the best I can do today is going to be an introduction. It's an introduction to the bigness of the new covenant as it's articulated in the book of Hebrews. And if I said that three more times, everybody's eyes would roll back in the back of their head. So I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to talk about the, 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 the reality and the sheer excitement of being engaged in this covenant, being governed by it, being led by it, being included in it. And so I'm excited about the exploration of the vast and beautiful territory opened up by the new covenant. Father, I ask that you would cause us to imagine and open up our imaginations to the extraordinary nature of the covenant that was forged between you and Jesus with us in him and you knowing we're in him and his blood satisfying everything that was required for this thing to be what it is. Open our imaginations. If we can peek across the horizon and see some secret place that we've never gone, let us know that we have permission to go there. If we look up and we see a brand new vista in the sky, let us know that this is within the bounds of the new covenant. This covenant is going to be in effect, Lord, when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. That's how big it is. It's going to be effect when the dead are raised. That's how big it is. It's going to be effect, Jesus, when you come and bring your rewards and when every person's deeds are examined in the, in the glorious light, Father of your face. This is a big deal that we're involved in. I pray that you'll expand our hearts and minds to embrace it and to be embraced by it. The next thing I'm excited about is the culture flowing from Jesus in this new covenant is a yes and amen culture. A yes and amen I don't know about you guys, but I can quickly think of people in my life who love Jesus, believers all, and their, their, their structure is built around what they shouldn't do. 
what they can't do, what they're afraid of offending God by doing. And the new covenant is the opposite of that. The new, co- new covenant is an invitation to explore, to see what's around the corner, to dig deeper in the scripture, to say, I know it says that, could it say this too? We're going to talk about some of those as we go through this, this series. Bigger, bigger, better. That's what the new covenant is. I'm excited about the freedom and the security of this covenant that allows us to explore and think even if we might make a mistake. One of the enormous characteristics of the new covenant that is unlike any covenant in the past, not the Mosaic covenant, not the far-reaching covenants under Noah or Abraham or David, this covenant, you can screw up. You can screw up in it, and it is built to deal with it. That doesn't sound like a lot of <laughs> That doesn't sound like a lot of uh, a religious talk that you get. I know that. I lived a whole bunch of my life worrying about offending God and not doing that as well. But even if we make a mistake or if we misinterpret a scriptural opportunity, or if we push freedom a little bit too far. This covenant's designed for that. Now, you don't have to believe me, but I'm going to do my best to persuade you over the next couple of weeks. Today we're going to talk about it, but, but just think about it for a second. In the very um, components of this covenant, there's a because at the end. Because I will, I will have mercy on your transgressions. Okay? And I won't remember your sins, no, not ever again. That's why I say this covenant is designed to allow you and I to survive mistakes. Not really even just survive them. Thrive in them. I'm excited that the new covenant transforms such inevitable blunders into experiences of God's mercy, an opportunity to humble ourselves and learn and grow. Why would God build into this covenant a point of access to mercy if he didn't know that we were going to need it? Too many people read over that and they just think that's a transitional experience when you're getting saved or something like that. No. It's the core of the relationship that God has established with us through the blood of Jesus. And so I'm going to encourage you to explore I think the New Covenant encourages us to look around and see what's there. And I'm going to go through some examples of my own life in just a little bit before we go into breakout session. And we are going to go into breakout session tonight, and I just really want, I'm going to throw some questions at you guys, and we'll be a part of it. But I want you to discuss this, and I want you to think about it. Now, don't freak out. I'm not advocating uh, that we are indifferent about our behavior, because there's some other stuff that's pretty cool. I'm not advocating that we're uh, loose living. I'm not advocating that we're um, rejecting the call to be holy. I'm saying we finally, finally live in a covenant in which we can pursue that and receive it, engage in it without shame and without the constant setback of guilt and feeling like we've violated something. So the New Covenant's a big deal. I know in my own, it's, it's been a big deal to me for a while, and it's getting to be more one. But I know a lot of people 
they just take it like another series of scriptures. As a matter of fact, they'll even chop the book of Hebrews up. And this is something I'm hoping we're going to be able to overcome in the next couple, three weeks. Uh, they chop the book of Hebrews up into some specific kinds of doctrines and specific kinds of, of uh, look-see sort of situations. And uh, I, hope, I hope I can show you that that's not necessary. That we can embrace this book as one covenant extravaganza, one covenant articulation. So, I'm excited the new covenant government is one that never identifies us by our sin, our sins, or our failures. That's also in the promise. That's really what it means. It's an identity question at the end of chapter 8 there where it says, I will have mercy on your transgressions and your sins I will remember no more. God does not identify us by our sins. The Old Covenant, unfortunately, had no choice but to do that because there wasn't a provision made for sin. There was only an accommodation of sin and the sacrifices. And so you read a lot of things like, if you do this, then take this and bring it to the priest and then lift it up or wave it or do this or that or the other. And I'm not minimizing those. They were, they were a, a gift of God, just like the animals skin covering Adam and Eve was a gift of God to help them live through their failure and shame. But the new covenant takes an entirely different approach. We aren't people identified by the sins we commit. We are not people identified by our failures. I love it. I'm excited that under this covenant we have access to the realm of both the heavens and the earth. I'm going to talk a little bit about ascensions and ascension experiences. And a lot of us here have uh, uh, experienced them for a little while. Most of us have had encounters through dreams or visions or prophecy, uh, through ascension experiences, if you had that terminology, open visions. Most of us have experienced that one time or another in our life for a long time. But where did we get the permission to do that? Why do we think it's okay? to go to heaven and look around. It's the new covenant. Now, I know that most people don't associate that with it when you do an Ascension 101 study, but I'm going to show you something in the book of Hebrews about the new covenant that is the grounds. I'll show you a couple things, actually. That they are the grounds for what we pursue when we have an ascension. We take a trip to heaven. We call on God for an open vision. We interpret a dream. We're only able to do this because of the New Covenant. That's why it's widespread and it's consistent. And that's why every one of us carries in our own identity the concept of being a priest and a king that can traffic in such things. So I am excited that we can do that. And I'm excited that both heaven and earth recognize and respond to our authority as sons of God. And that's what, that's what the New Testament is about living as a son under this covenant, living as a son. So let me walk you through a few things. I'm going to look at the book of Hebrews with us. I'm going to introduce it tonight. Then we're going to break up and, and talk about some examples. But it's an introduction to the revelation in this book. And I'm going to try to help us understand and, and further understand myself that it is one unified, progressive telling 
of the glory of the new covenant. So let's take a look at that. Okay, so <clears throat> that's probably too small for you to see too. What was I thinking? Does it? It's okay on the phone or something? All right, all right. Bless God, I'll quit beating on myself. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, Jeremy's up there squinting. I love you guys. Never let an opportunity go by. All right. I'm going to make the statement that the book of Hebrews and the revelation in that book might, in fact, just be the key to understanding our lives in the context of all of Scripture. I'm here to tell you that your favorite Scripture, whatever it is that guides you, whatever it is that comforts you, your favorite Scripture is very likely loosed in meaning, filled with meaning, because of revelation that comes out of this book. I don't know why it's called Hebrews. They're not even sure who wrote it. I think, you know, Paul probably did, but it, it's not confirmed that way. But it doesn't matter. It's in, the, it's in the canon of Scripture. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's been preserved down through the ages, and it, it'll knock your socks off if you'll, if you'll let it. So we're going to look at it. So here, I'm going to go through the chapters. Chapter 1. Chapter 1. What does chapter 1 reveal to us? What does it teach us? It teaches us how to evaluate prophecy. It teaches us to hear what God is saying. Anybody think that's important? It also teaches us to note sin's true status. True status. That's just chapter 1. We'll get into that in just a second. Chapter 2, how to see your role and your stature in creation. You know, we're, we're among a group of people who are, are long in pursuit of the authority of believers, the priesthood of believers. Uh, we pray for the sick. We've, a lot of us have prayed to raise people from the dead. We, uh, we stick our necks out there because we believe, we believe that there is an authority and a power that we have been vested with in Christ. And the place where we see that, and we see it in context, is in chapter 2 of Hebrews. What is man that you're mindful of him? Why did you, you put all this under his charge? Hebrews is the place we learn about that. Chapter 3 tackles a huge issue, a huge issue. Why is it important to believe? The new covenant is not an excuse for unbelief. The new covenant is the basis for belief. What we are revealed as and what is revealed to us and the security of the situation we find ourselves in is why you can believe and why you can be confident in your belief. So that's chapter 3. Chapter 4 is how Jesus, our apostle and high priest, gives us access to this authority and to his rule. It's that passage uh, or that chapter that talks about contending with the gaze of God it talks about the Word of God being sharper than any two-edged sword, separating bone from marrow and thought and intent. And then it says, He, He, He. We're confronted in chapter 4 with Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our, our faith, and the access that He gives us to a place that formerly was thought of exclusively as judgment, but now is actually a dispensary of grace. Pretty cool. Chapter 5, there's a little phrase in there that talks about Jesus as the source of eternal salvation. 
There's a lot of places people preach out of and teach out of that talk about the gospel, that talk about salvation, that talk about being born again. There's only one source, though. And unfortunately, the church doesn't live like it. And most everybody would concede that Jesus, believing in him, is the issue. But before we believe in Jesus, he had to be the source of salvation. And this shows how he is, so we'll get into that at some point. Chapter 6 tells us to hold on to the hope set before us. It's in the new covenant that that hope is really revealed, that it's really manifest. Chapter 6, is, is, it starts with that, that thing about uh, let us lay aside the, the baby things, the fundamental things, and then it talks about crazy stuff that you never think about as being baby steps, like uh, repentance from dead works and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and judgment. <laughs> it's only in the New Testament you can talk about those things as kindergarten subjects. But that's what chapter 6 is about. Chapter 7 outlines something that I'm going to give you a personal example of in my life, the influence of the New, of the new Covenant. And that's the uh, difference between the old priesthood and the new. The old priest and the new priest. Very, very critical. Very critical. And I'm telling you what, a lack of knowledge about this conversion from the old priesthood to the new priesthood. From the uh, Aaronic priesthood, the Levites, and the Melchizedek order of priesthood fulfilled in Christ. It's a misunderstanding of that that keeps a lot of people frustrated and in bondage, even though they love Jesus. And it's a great temptation. So I'm going to talk to you about how that one impacted me. Chapter 8 is the why and the how, the nuts and bolts of the new covenant. And it's, to, to even speak about it like that is so like uh, understated. It's not even funny. But uh, Chapter 8 just lays it right out and why there's a necessity, why the new covenant exists. It existed in the heart and purpose of God. It was prophesied for way back in Jeremiah's day, and it's always been the plan of God. And like I say, this is a covenant that is going to be fully in place when the new Jerusalem manifests on the earth. It's incredible. It's incredible. Chapter 9 is why the new had to replace the old once and for all time. And interestingly enough, it's not just a progress of, of religious order or something like that. It's about your conscience and my conscience. We have to have a clean conscience if heaven is to be an experience. We could be there without a clean conscience, and it wouldn't be that much different than here. There would just be a lot more things to hide from. Chapter 9 explains that in super great detail and a lot more. Chapter 10 is why your sins will never, ever be remembered and attached to your identity. But at the very same time, it's why your sins cannot and will not continue to linger in your life. Chapter 10 is not the self-discipline chapter of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 10 is the covenant release chapter of the book of Hebrews. It's the one that reveals that there's a new way into the heavenlies by the broken body of Jesus. And we're released in that, both to confront the worst of our lives, the worst of our sins, and then in the same release 
to learn to stick it out with one another, continue to assemble, and to provoke one another to love and good deeds. Chapter 10 is a cool chapter. Chapter 11, chapter 11 is one of those, those chapters that I was guilty in a lot of my life of, of cherry-picking a passage or two out of it. I always, uh, I always loved the, he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those that seek him. Some of the translators, the ones in the King James uh, and, and others, cherry-picked that passage to add the word uh, to seek him, what, uh, diligently or with all your heart? And it's not in there. It's not in the text. I'm not saying you shouldn't seek God diligently. I'm just saying that's how we and I have used passages like this. One of my other favorite passages is one about Sarah. Sarah believed God. Then I read the story about back in Genesis, and I go, no, she didn't. And it showed me the difference between how God thought and what's recorded in heaven and what the history is. But as fun as that is, what chapter 11 is really about is how faith connects us and perfects us. There is a surprising connection that you have with people that you may not think about a lot. When you read the Old Testament, you read about the exploits of Abraham or, or David or any of those biblical heroes. Matter of fact, all of them, all the stories, all of them did not receive the fulfillment of all that they were promised because God was waiting for them to be connected to us and us to be connected to them and receive it. As outlandish as that sounds, that's exactly what it teaches. And there's a very understandable reason once you see this in the bigger context and don't just chop up the verses. Chapter 12. Chapter 12 is how and why you can be assured. And here's the life that I know, and I am going to try to help us see and receive. The life that we have coming in the, in the new covenant that's our birthright, our entitlement, is a life that is meaningful, it is consistently growing, it is holy, it is supernatural, and it is influential. That's the nature of the life of a son of the new covenant. And as amazing and spectacular and spiritual as all that is, chapter 13 lets us realize and this life is also going to be a marriage. Just like the incarnation was a marriage of the Son of God and the Son of Man, about the heavenly one, the logos of God, and the humanity, that our life in the new covenant is also going to be filled with family and the simple joys of friends and celebration. Very practical. None of this too heavenly-minded to be any earthly good thing. So that's really the spread of what's revealed in Hebrews, and we're going to talk about it. So let me, let me just give you a couple, uh, a couple of examples out of my life, and I'll have Riley put these up in just a second, but I just want to talk to you about them a little bit. The first one I'm going to talk about, and I want you to listen to these as possible discussion points when we get into the breakout session. So the first one I'm going to talk about is my pastoral call and the impact the New Covenant life has on it. And the second, I'm going to talk about our shared experiences, for most of us anyway, and the particulars that we've been experiencing in ascensions, trips to heaven, visits to heaven, and why the new covenant's relevant to that. So, Riley, go ahead and pop that up there, and we'll look at these. So just so you can see them, my pastoral call and ascension experiences. So let me... Uh, chapter 7 is the place that kind of helps me articulate the impact on, on my pastoral call. 
And it has to do with uh, the priesthood. Priests are talked about more, but Jesus was declared in the book of Hebrews to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is a figure that intercepted Abraham after he had gone to rescue the people that were captured from Sodom. And he brought them back to the king of Sodom. And so I'm going to read a little section here about this Melchizedek thing. And uh, it starts with this declaration in 7.17. It says, uh, let me back up just a little bit to 14. It says, for it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And you guys know that Judah was a tribe of worship and celebration. It was not the tribe. There were kings that came out of Judah, David did. But it was not the tribe set aside as Levites to be priests. So it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, the tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still if another priest arose according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of the law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So this is the contrast that Hebrews chapter 7 is making about these two priesthoods. On one hand, one priesthood draws us close to God. And on the other hand, the other priesthood stood between them and the presence of God to receive their sacrifice and offerings. Now, I'm not saying that wasn't a necessary and an important function, but the difference between somebody taking your hand and bringing you to God, which the priests were not allowed to do, if you remember the layout of the tabernacle. They couldn't do it. They couldn't bring you into the Holy of Holies. It wasn't until Jesus hung on the cross that the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, and certainly separated the court of the Gentiles and all of that. It wasn't until the death of Jesus that that veil was torn and the access both in and out was granted to that place of the holy presence of God on the ark between the cherubim. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, meaning that they became priests through their bloodline, but he with an oath through the one who said, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests on one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. So that won't explain the whole of what I'm going to talk about, about my own pastoral calling, but I've been pastoring for a while, and I don't, I don't have a doubt that I was called to be a pastor. But it was challenging growing up and going to Bible school without the new covenant being the centerpiece of how we thought about our call as, as pastors. Yeah, early age. Like, like child? Oh, no, no. Well, sort of. I was about 11 when I first got an inkling about it. Yeah, I, the Lord spoke to me about being a pastor in kind of an unusual way. I won't go into details. <laughs> but nevertheless. It's a breakfast story. Yeah, it's a breakfast story. 
Anyway, uh, but from the time, you know, like 17 or so, when I, when I actually understood what the thing was. And, but when I went to Bible college, one of the things that was challenging for us, it was difficult, is there was a constant temptation to be the man with all the answers, to be the go-between. And, you know, I, I would be lying if I didn't say I succumbed to that a couple of times and a few times and a few seasons in my life where I, I bore that pressure. It wasn't that fun, really, uh, because I knew I didn't actually have those answers, but didn't keep me from trying. Anyway, the pastoral call is not one to be the go-between between between you and God. That's a priestly role. That's an earthly priestly role. The Israelites couldn't just stroll up there with an offering. They had to give it to a priest. They couldn't just go up there and hit the, the starter button on the altar, throw their lamb on there and see the smoke rise to the Lord. For good or for ill, the priestly role was an intermediary role between people and God. A pastoral role, as I understand it, is to get out of the way of people and do what you can to shove them towards them. So if I disappoint you as a pastor, it'll be either because I failed to get behind you and give you a good push, or somehow I slipped back into a non-New Covenant role (laughs) of a priest and I'm standing there with my arms folded, looking pious, as if I could get you someplace. Once I came to understand the new covenant, I began to understand the real value of myself and being able to lead and and provide an example of somebody who worships, somebody who goes to the Lord, somebody who trusts the Lord, somebody who's now, somebody who's kind of fearless at exploring new things, somebody who went through a whole season in my life uh, a few years ago, where I was able to lay everything I believed out on the, on the table, proverbially, and really sometimes, and, uh, and just say, Lord, is this really what you, who you are? Or is this something I borrowed from somebody that I trusted? And I want to tell you guys, you have this access to God. This is the nature of the, of the new covenant. I have nothing on you, and neither does any other pastor. And then this, in times of trouble like this, like we're facing with, with the shutdown and the pandemic and all that stuff, this really begins to show because people start looking to other people for their answers, for their opinions, for their relationship with God. And so the new covenant has really changed that on me. And honestly, I'm, I'm better for it. I'm more at peace about it. And I'm more willing to get in and help you, but beside you, like this. Not in front of you, like this. And so I want you to think about, are you looking for a better priest all the time? Or are you looking for one and to one who once for all, without beginning and without end, established your righteousness? And now it's up to you to embrace that, explore it, live in it. That's part of your righteousness, your ability to know the the truth, your ability to interact with heaven and earth. We're going to talk about it in just a second. That 
is the fruit of the new covenant. It's part of that area that we need to explore more and more and more. Even, even, if, we, even if we get a little off the trail sometime, because we're going to come back, we're going to be led back, we're going to be guided back by the Holy Spirit, and we're going to step in front of God, and we're going to find an experience of His mercy. No condemnation. No shame. The second one I want to talk about is, is this whole thing with ascension, experience, ascension experiences. I love it. We are having more, I am personally having more ascensions now than ever. We have a couple of them each week. Then uh, I participate with one with Tim and Meg for Nancy Cohen's Network Global. And, uh, you know, I've listened to teaching about it. And prior to that, I listened to teaching about trips to heaven taught by Judy Franklin uh, back at Bethel and Benny Johnson. And I really want to shout out to them. I, I bless them for opening the door to these kind of experiences in my life. I remember the very day I was sitting there on the platform, Bethel Reading. And uh, Judy said, close your eyes and see if you can envision Jesus. And I did, and I did. And then she said, see if he'll ask you to come. And he stuck his arms out, and I walked right up to him, and it was the beginning of a wonderful thing, <laughs> you know. And now I've got ascension language that, that explains some parts of it and the idea of going up. But I, I want to I share something with you. It's, uh, if you think that we have permission to visit heaven, and we draw that permission from the Scriptures out of Revelation where, where uh, either the Lord or an angel said to John, come up here, uh, or whether we just try to piggyback on top of Paul's illustration of 14 years ago, I don't know whether it was in the spirit or out of the spirit, but I went up and saw, you're incorrect. The most significant, the most significant permission to engage the heavens is found in Hebrews chapter 12 in all your New Testament. It's not a passing reference to something that happened with somebody else. Hebrews chapter 12 tells you and I who we are and what we're doing. Beginning in verse 18, it says this, For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, into the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which Sound was such that those who heard begged that no further words be spoken. For they could not bear the commandment, even if a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. Obviously, that's talking about the encounter that the children of Israel had after Egypt at the base of Sinai. But it says that's not what we're coming to. That was the only way to get up there was to climb Sinai which Moses had to do a couple of times. The elders of Israel were allowed to come once. and So I'm not saying the interaction wasn't real, but I'm saying it was a limited one. It was an earthly one. God came down or came to to manifest himself. And, uh, and we all know the results. But it says, but you have come. And listen to this. I'm just going to read it without commentary. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abraham. I think that is a magnificent description of our access to the heavenlies. And it's not even saying you can come. 
The new covenant acknowledges that we belong there. We have come. This is our covenant territory. Let me go over them again. You've come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Everything you read about the, the, the bride of Christ, the, the bride of the Lamb, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and sitting there 1,800 miles by 1,800 miles, and all this kind of crazy stuff, amazing stuff. You can see it from miles and miles and miles over the horizon because it's square. All of that is our birthright in the new covenant. Not just places, but to the myriad of angels. I don't know how many of you, when you got in, into prophetic things or trips to heaven or whatever, you, started, you felt kind of funky at first about, well, can I really ask angels to do something? Do I really have that right? Yeah. You do as a new covenant son. I don't know if any of you have ever taken the time to try to figure out what Paul was meaning when he says, you shouldn't dispute with one another all the time because don't you know, if you take one out of the court, that's crazy. Don't you know you're going to judge angels? Well, it's your status and my status as sons in the new covenant that Paul was talking about. If we try to make a doctrine out of that and figure that out, like about a hundred other doctrines, without realizing that they flow from our place in the new covenant, we're going to be goofy. The last one here, to the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So just as an example, as I was recently, we've been having some experiences in Ascension where we were given the chance to pray for people and see their names written down. And uh, I don't know about that. We were able to pray for these weird-looking, snaky things, and they turned beautiful and flew off because we were asked to declare freedom from the curse they were under. Now, I can't make a doctrine out of that right yet, and I don't, don't, don't want to. And uh, for those of you listening on Facebook and repeating that, I'm just telling you what I experienced. But how do you sort something like that out? You can reject it. You can just reject it outright. And if you reject it four or five times, you're pretty much guaranteed never to have to deal with it again. But it wasn't a kind of context that I wanted to reject it. It was a context where I was there and the presence of the Lord was real. There were other people there. Nobody was trying to outdo anybody. It was just God showing us stuff and showing us us, doing stuff and being stuff. And so I find in the New Covenant a place to let that rest while I figure out what the heck's going on. So I encourage you to do the same. That's an example. All right, so what kind of questions might be for you? Here's one. Can I trust my heart? I've had conversations with people recently that say, well, I can't trust my heart because it's desperately wicked. Well, I tried teaching my way out of that, out of Jeremiah, and that wicked's not in there and all that kind of stuff. You can check that out. We got them on the website. But the truth of the matter is, there's a new covenant reason that you can trust the inclinations of your heart. So I want you to talk about that. How about this one? If I screw up, is God more likely to shun me, punish me, or discipline me? Why? 
You have to make a choice on what you're going to expect. And if you pick wrong, you're going to be walking on eggshells when you ought to be running like a little kid with a big wooden sword and a big breastplate made out of a, I don't know, trash bag or something and a garbage can lid and tackling the world because you're a son of the new covenant. There's one more question I'm going to pop up later, but these are what I want you guys to do as we break out and talk for about 15 or so minutes. So here's what we're going to do in the breakout sessions. Uh, Riley's going to break us up randomly into three groups. And uh, uh, I really encourage you to stick around and stay. We're not going to try to come back together. That was a disaster. <laughs> we, I, uh, I don't know how to do that yet. So uh, uh, we're going to break up in just a second. So you're going to be swept by the magic of Zoom into a small group. And then that's where I want you to do three things. Give some thought to a couple of these questions. Discuss them among yourselves. And let me go to the next one, Riley. I've got a, another question. So here I've got them. Can I really begin to trust my heart? Why or why not? And think about this in light of, of what you know about the, the new covenant. I'll give you a clue on number one. There's a reason buried in chapter eight. If I screw up, is God more likely to shun me, punish me, or discipline you? There's a secret buried in chapter 12 for question two. And how am I connected to believers of days past? The answer to that is in chapter 11. Chapter 8 for number 1, chapter 12 for number 2, chapter 11 for number 3. So I want us to break up into groups. I want you to talk it up. I want you to take communion together. Now, somebody in your group just volunteer to lead out in communion, and uh, we'll see how that goes. And then uh, stay on there and talk in fellowship as long as you want. We'll keep an eye on the groups, and we won't shut the meeting until you guys are done. Okay? Father, I ask that you would uh, pull out of us the beginnings of a discussion that will liberate us into the full freedom of sons of the new covenant. And I ask for it in Jesus' name. We'll see you in the groups.